0: Take your Bibles, if you will, your copy of the Word of God, and turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Small book right after the book of uh, Philippians. And in my Bible, it's page 1400, but I don't think that helps you anything. (laughs) Colossians chapter 1. It is, again, good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And uh, I look forward to this day. Um, my 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 trepidation towards Sunday is, you know, I have to preach, and or I get to preach. Be better way to put that. I have to make sure my heart is right before the Lord. And uh, I've said this many times before. But if there's any kind of arguments in my in my in uh, my in my home, between my wife, about Wednesday or Thursday, or the closer you get to Sunday, I just keep getting nicer and nicer and nicer because I I need to be right uh, with the Lord and right with my wife and right with uh, as many people as possible. But here in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at what the Word has for us, what the Lord has for us, right there in verse number 1. We won't focus on all the whole chapter. We'll read down to about verses 20, 22, somewhere around there, and uh, we'll focus just on a handful of verses there. But I like putting it in context. Um, so we can understand what the author here, the original author, the Apostle Paul, and God through Paul is meaning, uh, is wanting to say to us here you know, some 2,000 years later. But verse number one says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in the, all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Verse 7 says, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister in Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy uh, of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to the glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness." giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who, still speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Let us pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we love You, and we thank You for Your Son Jesus Christ, Lord. We love You. Uh, we love the fact that You became a man and You went to that old wicked cross to pay for our sin debt, Lord, and Lord. And as we as we look at the text this morning, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we can just completely immerse ourselves into the worship of you, into the preaching of, the, of your word. Lord, help us to, to forget what's on the agenda, may, maybe even what's on the, the agenda this afternoon or throughout the week, and maybe forget the past and all the stressors and all the things that are weighing on our minds that, that deal with the, the physical and the here and now, Lord. Help us to, to just, I don't know, maybe ignore those things for a few moments here, Lord, as we see you high and lifted up, as we focus on you and what you have for us out of your word. Lord, meet with us. Lord, meet with me and fill me with your spirit and help me to convey what you've given to me uh, for your people, for us. Lord, as we as we sit here under the preaching of your word, Lord, lead us and guide us as the great shepherd that you are. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <clears throat> so... Here we are in Colossians chapter 1, and something just happened with my throat. I don't know what's going on, um, but bear with me. I, I hope it's not a distraction. But I want to say that there's no grammatical connection, even though it's right after Philippians. There's no grammatical connection between Paul's letter to the Philippians and his letter to the Colossians. <clears throat> they, are course, they are, of course, sourced in the same truth, God's truth, the, the, what is truth? The Bible is true, of course. But last week we looked at Philippians 4. In a message entitled Our Great God. Our Great God. And and I tried to put that in thirty, you know, thirty minutes or so, but well that, that'll take a lifetime for us to recognize how great our God truly is. But today we'll look at Colossians chapter one with a message entitled Our Great Savior. This whole chapter is a It's just praiseworthy. It's it's Paul just going overboard, telling us how great Jesus Christ is. And we're going to try to get a hold of a little bit of that this morning. Now, there is much to see and learn from Colossians chapter 1 regarding our great Savior. So we won't reach it all. He is God. And to study God is, of course, inexhaustible. There's there's no end. Uh, His ways are higher than our ways and not just a little higher. They're infinite. But there are some truths here that I think here in Colossians chapter 1, that I think should compel every single child of God, every single one of us, to, to do a couple things, to do many things, but a couple things I'm going to mention here this morning. But maybe as we hear these things, maybe sit back and reflect on how great God is. Maybe that would maybe it should wow us a little bit as we look at these texts here. I think that's what Paul is trying to get across as he is he crescendos the the compliments about our Savior. So it should make us sit back and reflect and say wow. But at the other time, at the same time rather, these wonderful truths should compel us to our feet in praise. They should drive us to our knees in worship because he indeed is our great Savior. He is Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the themes woven throughout throughout this text here uh, in the epistle to the Colossian Christians is an urge to simply be thankful, to be thankful to what God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you were to take your Bible and go to chapter 3, verse 17 of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 17, Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he says, "...whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Giving thanks to whatever we do, we give thanks to God. And I think it's this is not a study about the, the life of the Apostle Paul, but when he, read, when he met the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus, it changed everything. His life was before about being a Pharisee, about being a man, about being a law, about being a Jew, and all of those things. And it went to being all about Jesus Christ. All about Jesus Christ. And I think... That's what God wants us to come away with, to be, I have our lives to be all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's be thankful this morning. There's much to be thankful for. There's so much to be thankful for. I mean, our great Savior, who, who became man and he's just, he's just a great God. But as would be expected, as we look at this text here, the greatness of the Son is first seen, is first seen in the Father. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, actually look at verse 11, Strengthen him with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So the greatness of the Son is first seen in the Father, even in the text, even in Scripture as a a, a whole from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And even though we are to rightfully give thanks to God the Father, there's no no argument there. Verse 17 states that He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And verse 19 says, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all the fullness dwell. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all the fullness dwell. And then back in 317, I already mentioned that before it ends with, I'm going to just read the whole verse again. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. The Him is Jesus Christ. So we are to do, we are to give thanks, we are to live our entire lives according to Jesus Christ. And that's no surprise here in church. We are to do everything by Him or through Him, through Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and many other passages show that God the Father chooses to operate through God the Son. Abundantly clear. God the Father chooses to operate through God the Son. From creation to redemption, our great Savior has been the hands and feet of God's work. All throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, He, Jesus Christ, has been the hands and feet of God's work. Notice verses 12 and 13 again. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So the Father, God the Father, made us fit to partake. He delivered us from the power of darkness and he put us in his Son's kingdom. Now you may ask, how did the Father do that? We all know the answer to this. He did so through Jesus Christ. He did so through the cross. It's through Jesus Christ. There's no creation without Jesus Christ. There's no redemption without Jesus Christ. Without me, ye can do nothing, Jesus says. In John 15, I believe it is. And in reality, all of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is involved in our redemption. The Father sent the Son and the power of the Spirit the Father sent the Son and the power of the Spirit. The Father sent, the Son saves, and the Spirit seals. Now it's a little bit more complicated than that, but at the at the wave tops, the Father sends, the Son saves, and the Spirit seals. But verse 19 again states that it pleased the Father that in Jesus Christ all fullness should dwell. All the fullness. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, look over there real quick. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Him, Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of God. All that there is of God is in Jesus Christ. He is all God and all man. Now there are things that He accomplished on this earth that only God can do. And there are things that He accomplished on this earth that only Man can do, or a created being can do. For example, only man or creation can hunger or thirst. Only man gets tired. More importantly, man dies. Only man can die. You see, God doesn't experience these things the way we do. God the Father, that is. But Jesus did. Jesus has experienced those things. He suffered and died as a man. One of the greatest things that I think I can get across is that Christ went to the cross as a man. Now, He was all God. He never ceased to be God. He was all man, but He died on that cross as a man. He suffered and died. He went to the cross as, again as a man, and it hurt Him as much as it would have hurt us. He didn't have some divine power to take away the pain. He endured it. So there are some things that He did on this earth that only a man can do. But He also did some things that only God can do. He healed. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He made the deaf to hear. He raised the dead. He Himself was resurrected. I've heard it put in a question this way about uh, the argument about whether Jesus is God. If Jesus wasn't man, then who was it that was beaten and crucified and hung on that cross and died and put in that barbara tomb? And if you were not God, who came out of that tomb? No man can do that on his own power. The fact of the matter is that our great Savior, Jesus Christ, is all man and all God. He's as much man as you are and as I am. Anything less, really... Than him being God, all God, or all man, and we would still be without hope. If he did not become all man, he only redeemed part of man, but he redeemed all of man because he is all man. And again, anything less than either of these, and we would still be without hope in our sins. But praise God, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus Christ is all we need for redemption. Verse 14 in Colossians chapter 1 again states that we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, quite frankly, as I was putting this together, if any of us in this world, in this, in this, in this auditorium, around the world, anywhere, if any of us depart this world into everlasting torment, it will be because we want to go. It will be our own doing, because God sent the solution. In Jesus Christ. And He alone is our hope. He's our great Savior. He's our great Savior. So as we look at our great Savior this morning, I want to point out a few things from the text that show how great our Savior truly is. First, look at verse number 15 again. Verse 15, speaking of Christ, says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, of every creature. I've already said that our title this morning is our great Savior, and our first point this morning, our first truth that we're going to look at this morning is Jesus Christ is the firstborn of every creature. Now I might throw you for a loop there for a moment as you see that. Wait a minute, Christ is eternal, and, and He's God, and all those things. Let's look at these things, because this is a unique statement. And some have wrongfully concluded that Christ was created first, and then He created everything else. But that's not the case at all. This very first, the very verse that we just read says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, I love this, but Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. When he walked this earth and when we see him face to face, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He manifested himself so that we can relate to him. And then verse 16 of this same passage here, this same chapter, states that by him were all things created. John chapter 1, verse 3 states that all things were made by him, Jesus Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now think about that for a moment. There was, without him was not anything made that was made. So if Jesus Christ created everything and he himself is created, how did he come into existence? He cannot create himself it takes intelligence intelligence requires intelligence and even in, even in molecular biology which i am no expert by any means but you have a cell you got all those things the mitochondria and all that craziness inside of there but it takes a fully mature cell to make another cell it's, it's part of self-theory. The same thing is true of intelligence, of, of humanity, of God. There's none of us getting here. That's not good English. But we don't arrive here without God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So to be the first created, He must create Himself. And that's just absurd. That, that cannot happen. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, states that Jesus is the same yesterday, today. And forever. He is not created. He is the eternal creator. And with authority, if you remember there in John eight fifty eight, he told the Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He is eternal. That I am statement equated him with God at the burning bush. That is God, eternal. So his status as the firstborn of every creature must mean something different than he is a first cre- a created being. And the most favored interpretation is that is a reference to his status as the firstborn, his status as the firstborn. In other words, in the Old Testament, much attention—if you were to go through there, uh, through the Old Testament—much attention is given to the status of the firstborn son. In fact, when we become children of God, the Bible specifically states that all of us, men, women, boys, and girls, we become sons of God. And that's not talking about a gender there or a gender argument; it's talking about a right. Of, of sonship, if you will, as the first son. We get that double portion, if you will. But in Deuteronomy 21, 17, the Bible states that the father must honor the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. And this is the status within, within some parameters of our great Savior. He has the right to all creation. he's the, He has the right of the firstborn. All things, again, look at the end of verse 16, all things were created by him and for him. Now, I know we're doing some teaching here this morning, but I want to remind us that we are created by him and for him. By him and for him. Like a man, Shannon has having his house built here. He's those construction workers out there, they're spending some money and all that stuff, but it's all going to come right back over here, right? And they're going to pay for that. So they're having a house built. They're going to move into it. Because they're building it, it belongs to them. They have a right to do with that building however they please. A man who builds a house has a right to live in his house. He built it for him and his family. So for us to not live for or according to Jesus Christ who created us is not to live for him who created us. It's like the house saying, don't come in. I know it's ridiculous, but y'all get what I'm saying. When we do so, when we live contrary to God, we live contrary to our purpose, to our created purpose. In fact, we will never live out our full purpose until we live according to the purpose for which we are created in Christ Jesus. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. We belong to him, even more so as a Christian. We belong to him. But I want to point out a few occasions that in the Old Testament there are a few occasions where that right of the firstborn is taken from the literal firstborn and given to someone else. We think of Reuben, you know, of the oldest of the twelve tribes. We think of Esau, he's probably the most popular one. His status was taken and given to Jacob. Well, the same can be seen a little bit uh, in that of the first and second Adam. The first Adam forsook his inheritance through sin, who represents us, by the way, and the second Adam fulfilled the status of the firstborn. But there is another sense, before we move on, in which Christ is the firstborn of every creature. And I think it reflects upon his humanity as much as it does his divinity. In our understanding of time, we are are inside of time. We can't really fathom infinity, although we we try. We kind of have some small understanding of it. But there was a time... Before the incarnation, right, according to our timeline. I mean, God is outside of time. Y'all understand that. But there was a time before the incarnation, a time before Christ was born of a woman, a time when he walked this earth and a time after he walked upon this earth. So in the truest sense, I want to point out that as a man, when Jesus Christ stepped into time, he fulfilled what God intended man to be. He was the perfect man. He was God's, uh, what God intended man to be. He represented man as God created man to be. I'll just pause and wait for that to go by. I oh, was quick. Uh, and if creation, if we look back and study creation 1, 2, and 3, and Exodus chapter 20, and, 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 the, and the Psalms and stuff, if creation is any indication of God's intent, The plan was for every man to be born sinless and into a sinless creation and to remain sinless, right? That just makes sense. Jesus, however, is the only man born sinless. Now, of course, right? And in this regard, he's the firstborn. The first Adam was created, not born. He was created sinless. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was born sinless. The first Adam fell from grace. The second Adam is full of grace and truth. Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. He is the firstborn of every creature. But to say first usually implies a second, does it not? If I tell you I'm in first place, if there's no second, then can I really call call that first place? Hmm, maybe I should do that now. I should go run around the block and tell everybody that I'm the first to do that, but I didn't compete with anybody. But... Honestly, when when someone says first, it usually implies a second. And we're going to see how that unfolds here. Because our great Savior is not only the firstborn of every creature, He is also, look at verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Not only the firstborn of every creature, but the firstborn from the dead. And this is truly how we can be seconds, if you will. Truly how we can be a part of God's plan. Again, first implies a second, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. But this verse, we can't overlook the fact that it points out the resurrection. It requires a resurrection. You cannot be the firstborn from the dead without a resurrection. So there was a time when Jesus was alive and then dead and then resurrected. Paul here is speaking of the cross. And I have to be honest with you. As I go through the ups and downs of trials in my life, the cross is what keeps me on track. The cross should keep all of us on track. Now, I love the entire word of God. Y'all heard me preach through this. For those who have been around me for a number of years, I love the book of Genesis. I love how all that unfolds. I love the entire word of God. From cover to cover, you can find strength in this book. I love the historical narratives, the study of creation, the lives of Abraham, David, Daniel, and even more. All the psalms and the principles found in Proverbs. There's so much in this book that is exciting. From Noah's flood to the funeral, from Lazarus' funeral. So many things to to get thrilled about. It's all thrilling, but nothing compares to the cross. The cross, Jesus Christ, is the greatest miracle we've ever seen or ever read about or ever will be. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing compares to the cross nothing compares to the fact that god became man to reconcile man you know john 3:16 should never get boring to us it should still bring us to our knees it should shake us at our core for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life i'm afraid many christians today have lost sight of the cross They've lost sight of the fact that God was born into humanity to die for us, for our sins on the cross of Calvary. Now, I realize that life keeps us busy. Life keeps me busy. But the whole reason we are here this morning is because he came out of that grave, because God sent his only begotten son. We are here because of John 3.16. He who conquered sin and death for our sakes, we are here to worship him. We get away from that. Why are we even here? I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, Adam was not born. He was created. He was created mature, ready to till the ground. But Christ was born. Christ experienced every stage of our humanity. Humanity, As we were going through, I've shared with you all before that we just lost Kiki's father. And as we were kind of reading through the text there on the Bible, you know, Jesus lost his father. He he went through the same things that we're going through. He experienced every stage of our humanity. You know, he learned how to walk and how to read. He might have, if he were here today, he would have suffered through Algebra 2. And and all those things like that, you know. My point is that Jesus identifies with us. In Hebrews 4.15, the Bible states that in Jesus, we don't have some high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We have Jesus, who is one of us, he's not some distant God who who doesn't care. You know, there is a song back in the eighties or, and I am not condoning this at all. But there is this song that just sticks in my mind for some reason back from the eighties or nineties. I don't know when it was. If God was one of us, maybe y'all heard that. I'm like, well, no kidding of course God was one of us. Have you read the Bible? He was born. God sent his only begotten son. Again, he's not some distant God who doesn't care. He's not a figment of our imagination created to help us cope. He is certainly not some speechless idol sitting on some mantle somewhere. No, he is one of us, yet different. For he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So not only does he know our pain and our struggles, he experienced them as a man. I think he probably had dirt under his fingernails from, some, from time to time. Some calluses. Certainly on his sandaled shoes, he had calluses. He experienced life as man. Why? So that he could be crucified and be the firstborn from the dead. Because he loved us. His life was like no other. All the miracles and his, his immaculate conception and all those things. His life was like no other, but he died the death of a man. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. Life left his body. They carried him down from the cross as a lifeless body, just like you and I would do today. They wrapped him. His body laid there without life. As he hung on the cross, he went as far as his body could possibly go. And then he gave up the ghost. God experienced death. If that doesn't revolutionize everything in our life, why do we even read this? It should change everything about us. But even though his death was a common death, just like you and I will die if the Lord tarries, the grave couldn't hold him. Medically speaking, his death was no different, but his resurrection was. Yes, God used certain prophets in the Old Testament, even in the New, to raise other people from the grave. We think of Jairus' daughter, I think it was. We think of Lazarus even. I mean, Jesus raised him from the dead. But none of them were the firstborn from the dead. Not one of them. You see, none of them experienced a permanent resurrection. Lazarus died again. And if he died in the life of Martha, she wept again. They all died again. None of them ascended to the Father to be to the very throne room of God, as Hebrews 9 points out with Jesus Christ. None of them were resurrected into into a glorified, incorruptible body. But Jesus did. He's the firstborn from the dead. He will never die. He lives forever. Forever. And because he lives, you and I can live. Jesus told His disciples in John 14, 9, "...because I live, ye shall live also." Praise God. We can experience the same resurrection. You know, all of our hope is based on the resurrection. If God didn't come out of that grave, we have no hope. But He did. Jesus walked out of that grave. We can experience that same resurrection. Notice again Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, "...for it pleased the Father..." that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight." Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have the same resurrection as Jesus Christ. Remember John 3.16? You know, if, if we were all in seminary and we were writing a, in a New Testament where our dissertation, if you will, John 3.16 would be our thesis statement. It would be our purpose statement. And then Romans 10.9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the gospel message. That's how we experience the resurrection of Christ. It's about putting away self and all those selfless desires and and crucifying ourselves to God and trusting in Him and Him alone. You know, Acts chapter 2 records how the future church members, the future members of the first church there in Jerusalem, how they responded when Peter preached the gospel. The Bible says in verse 37 when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? When they were were confronted with the idea that Christ was crucified, that God sent His only begotten Son, and He died for our sins, personally, they're like, what can we do? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In other words, when you and I realize our need for redemption, When we realize our need for a resurrection, repentance and belief in God is the only way to go. It is literally the only way. Jesus is that way. Jesus himself told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yes, Christ is the firstborn, but we can be Second, we can also be born again. Take your Bible there, leave your place in Colossians, and go to 1 Corinthians 15, or or keep your thumb there in Colossians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read a few verses there, and it's all in the mindset of how we can come along and add to that first. We want to be in that resurrection, we want to also be born from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Through 23. The Bible says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits. He's the firstborn. We're the following fruits. Become the first fruits of them that slept. For since man, for since by man came death, that's Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive but every man in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, the firstborn. After that, they that are Christ at His coming. You see, Jesus Christ has paved the way to eternal life through the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection. And verse 18, back in Colossians, states that He is the beginning. Look at that again. In chapter 1, verse 18, and He is the head of the body the church who is the beginning. If there's a beginning... There's something that follows. The question is, for us, is will we or have we followed? Have we crucified ourselves to the world, so to speak, and trusted in Christ and Christ alone for eternal life? A first implies a second and so forth and on and on and on. Will you follow? Will you follow? And lastly lastly this morning, and kind of quickly, look at verse 18 again. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In the text, we see that Jesus is clearly the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn from the dead, both implying a second, but in the last phrase of this verse, he's preeminent. He's the first and the last. He's his own person, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. That preeminence means he's the first and the last. He's on his own list. He's his own category, if you will. There's none like him. He's the first and the last. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. And back in verse 18, it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Again, it's not Jesus first, and then the pastor, and then the deacons. It's not anybody else. It's Christ alone. He is the head of the church. It's not Jesus plus the church. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus Buddha or any other kind of idol out there, keeping the law or any of those things. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He must have the preeminence in our life, in salvation, in our sanctification, all of those things. He is the firstborn. Nobody else. Our salvation is is only in Him. He alone is the conqueror of death. He alone can pay for sin, can atone for sin. He must be preeminent. Again, we're we're not here to pray to Jesus and then somebody else. Any kind of saints that we believe gone before us, they are dead. Only Jesus Christ is the firstborn. Where our prayers are to Him and Him alone, our preeminence, or He must be our preeminence in even our prayers. And our new life, In Christ, should not be just a Sunday morning fling. This is not a thing where we come and just hang out with Jesus on Sunday. It must revolutionize our entire life. Notice the Bible again, that verse here in verse 18, that in some things, He might have the preeminence. That on Sunday morning, He might have the preeminence. That in my prayers, He might have the preeminence. No, in all things, in all things, he might have the preeminence in church, in school, at work, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, and on and on and on. He must have the preeminence. We are created by Him and for Him. We are redeemed by Him. We are reconciled by Him. We belong to Him. We belong to Him. The right of the firstborn is His. We have a great Savior. His preeminence, again, should change our lives. We can live because He lives. And in this and more, we have much to be thankful for. So this, this day, and maybe even every day, spend some time reflecting on how great our Savior is. Spend some time and show our adoration for Him, our love for Him through worship, through prayer, and thankfulness. And whatsoever ye do, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Let us pray.